When you're in Rome, you don't have to look far to know you're someplace really special. Rome is a place where history goes from printed words in the page of a book to something that's alive every minute of every day. Guides from Rome join us in a moment to help you enjoy the eternal city just like the Romans do. And I sit near the place where Keats was buried, and I look onto my absolute favorite monument in the city, and that is the pyramid, which I also see from my kitchen window. The views in Switzerland can make it worth your time to take the high road over the mountain passes. It's worth doing because you just get these incredible vistas that you just wouldn't get anywhere else. And Christopher Woods describes some of the most innovative gardens you can visit all around the world. It is a movable feast of color and texture. From strolling the streets where Caesar once walked to the living artistry of today's greatest gardens and outdoor adventures in the Swiss Alps, we've got getaways you're sure to love in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. What kind of places do you love best? Coming up, we'll explore the view from the mountain trails of Switzerland. And the author of a book that profiles the most innovative gardens in the world tells us about the creative ways they redefine botanical beauty. By the way, today's Travel with Rick Steves was recorded before the pandemic shutdowns. Let's start the hour with three guides from Rome who tell us what they love most about their city. Rome, it's the eternal city. It's one of the most romantic and popular destinations in the whole world. But many a visitor is met with a harsh reality when they wander Rome's ancient streets. Overcrowded sites, chaotic urban scenes, unpredictable transit strikes. If you're not prepared, Rome can be a challenge. But many will agree with me that it's all worth it. Nina Bernardo, Francesca Caruso, and Susanna Perrocchini specialize in guiding American tourists around Italy, and they've all made Rome their home because they love their city. They join us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share their love of Rome and share with us some tips on how we might enjoy it too. Nina, Francesca, Susanna, buongiorno. Buongiorno, Rick. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. So, Rome, I love history, and there's history everywhere you look. Francesca, you're born and raised in Rome. What's it like just to go to work surrounded by all that history? Well, sometimes I think about it that I can wait for the bus right by where Julius Caesar was stabbed to death. So I'm thinking that Rome is a place where history goes from printed words in the page of a book to something that's alive every minute of every day. So you can feel that something that happened 2,000 years ago happened right now. And there's layer after layer. Layer after layer. I mean, it's like an archaeological dig, isn't it? But it's right before your very eyes. Yes. You have over 2,000 years of history in front of your eyes every single moment, wherever you turn all at once. How does living in Rome shape your outlook? Well, I would say that most Romans take it for granted I think they, they gain a sense of how special the city is when they go elsewhere and they always find everything else so new. So uh-huh. you, become, you become sort of uh, aware of how, what it means to live with 2,000 years of history once you leave it. I think if you grow in it and you see the Colosseum every day when you drive to work, in a sense, you don't even see it anymore. And you might make a case that if you live in a land with very little, with a shallow history, you don't appreciate history quite as much. I mean, the oldest building in my town is 100 years old. The oldest building in your town is 20 times that. But maybe if you live with things that are 2,000 years old every day, I think you forget it and it just you becomes something that you know. I think I've had many conversations with my Roman friends who say they've never been inside the Colosseum. Yeah. They don't know where... They it, take it for granted. They take it for granted, yeah. But once you open their eyes to one thing, then they understand and appreciate as well. Nina, you adopted Rome as a hometown and you've lived there for nine years, but uh, you were from Naples before that, right? Yeah, I've lived in Italy about 20 years in a few different places, and I'm glad I chose Rome as my last place because I think if I had started there, I would have fallen in love immediately (laughs) and I would have never had another experience. How do the rest of the Italians look at Rome? 
<laughs> I think the rest of the Italians look at Rome like many people look at the capital of any nation, uh, that the Romans are more arrogant, that, you know, they have excessive pride in their city, like the way Brits would look at Londoners or Americans look at New Yorkers. Yeah, so Rome is sort of the, the dominant cultural hub. Yeah, exactly, hub. right. And Susanna, what's your take on the, the split between the north and the south of Italy, and, and where does Rome fall in there? Well, I definitely think that Rome falls uh, center-south. Center-south. I mean, yeah. But how would you say the, the personality between the north of Italy and the south of Italy is different? The, the north is more industrialized, more uh, organized. The people are uh, not as warm, let's put it that way. Yeah. In fact, people think that Rome is south, despite the fact that it's in the, in the center of the peninsula, because it has to do with the attitude towards life. So Rome has a little bit of that southern love of life, which you yes. might not find in Milano. Yes. Francesca, when, I'm, when I think of Rome, I think of a, it's gritty, it's coarse, I think it's brutal in some ways, but the more I visit it, the more I enjoy it. Is there a, a secret to loving Rome as a package deal in all its complexity? I think you have to meet it halfway. And I think that you shouldn't let the grit and the chaos stop you. You should be willing to go beyond it and see what's underneath the chaos. And also to go about it like a Roman. I think that even up north, they're willing to admit that the Romans have this fantastic kissera, sera, fatalistic, very humorous uh, approach to life. The Romans will crack a joke on anything if you're, you know, in the middle of a strike and nothing is working. There's always somebody comes up with a joke and... Is that you know, right? So absolutely. It lightens Roman the mood. Humor? Yeah, Nina. they lighten the mood a little bit. They're incredibly sarcastic and ironic. And cynical. Yeah, and cynical. And Sarcast, I, this, sarcastic, so, ironic, and cynical. This, yeah, that's it, a Roman character. This is an words. excellent example from Francesca's neighborhood. She was the one who pointed this out to me. There was a big pothole in the middle of the street, <laughs> and it had been there for probably centuries. Ever. And someone had, some Roman had put a sign there that said, Julius Caesar tripped on this pothole. <laughs> in oh. 45 BC, they even got the date right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> <laughs> classic. When and that you, is classic Roman humor. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Susanna Perrucchini, Nina Bernardo, and Francesca Caruso, three Romans about their city. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Cheryl's calling from Portland in Oregon. Thanks, Cheryl, for the call. Hi, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. So my husband and I are traveling to Rome. So other than the obvious sites like the Colosseum, the Vatican, what are some less-known sites that you would recommend? So all of us tourists, we have the same top 10 sites. Uh, mm. i just let each of our guides share their favorite offbeat site. Nina? I would definitely go to the Capitoline Museums. It's really, really a manageable museum with an excellent collection of ancient Roman art, and not a lot of people go there. And okay. gorgeous statues. Uh, Susanna? Well, I would choose uh, another a wonderful museum, which is uh, the Borghese Gallery mm. in one of the most beautiful park we have in the city, definitely the most manicured and the closest to the center. Over there you can find, you know, Bernini and you can find Roman mosaics and it's such a, a wonderful frame for a wonderful content. And it's so sumptuous and, and beautiful and also very in demand that you have to have a reservation. To yeah, see it. you must have a reservation. But a beautiful thing, uh, Francesca, how many people do they let in at a time? Do you know? I think around 300, so, so it's manageable. So it's manageable. It's never overwhelming very like elegant. the Vatican no. museums mm. or something. Francesca? I would say San Clemente, my, oh. my love and my obsession. So San Clemente is a church from the 12th century built on top of a church from the 4th century built on Roman buildings from the 1st century. So you can time travel 2,000 years and 30 feet underneath the level of the city today, and you can understand what it means when we talk about the layers. You actually experience the layers. So you step so, into a church called San Clemente. But it looks like a, any other church. It's a short walk know. from the Colosseum, Absolutely. so it's very easy to get there. And it looks like just a beautiful, I suppose, a Baroque church on the outside. On the outside, see. yes. And then you enter, and it's a 12th century church. Then you walk through a little door, you go down the stairs, and you actually get to 
a church built in the 4th century. So wait, it was 800 years old, and then all of a sudden it's 1,600 years old. And then there's another staircase that takes you down even further into what feels like the bowels of the earth that is actually Roman buildings from 2,000 years ago. And it's one thing to say layers, and another thing is to see them, to feel them, to imagine them, and experience them. San Clemente is the place. And this is before there was Christianity, when you get down to the very bottom of this thing. And it was actually, there was a, a little stream, and there was bricks, and there was buildings, and it was like... You can cross a little alley from 2,000 years ago, and you can imagine what the average life of a Roman was, as opposed to the grandeur of the form in the Colosseum. What was it really, really like to be an ordinary Roman? And there's no crowds. That's the amazing thing. You'll find people getting sunburned in the line trying to get into the Colosseum. In a 10-minute walk away, you've got San Clemente, and it's just you and the, and the dank, quiet, you know... <laughs> feeling of 2,000 years of history surrounding you. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Thank you. Our guests, Francesca Caruso, Nina Bernardo, and Susanna Perrucchini are taking your calls at 877-333-RIC as we hear why they love Rome and how you can love it too. Matt's on the line from Libertyville, Illinois. Hey, Matt. Hello, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate the time. My family of four, uh, my two young daughters, nine and six, and my wife are taking a trip to Rome. So with our home base around the Piazza Navona, is there some way to approach the city in a way that you see as much of it as you can and start to meet some of the locals? Uh, Nina, if you were uh, coaching parents with two... uh... I would say for sure one major activity a day and don't tire them out and do things that have a physical aspect to it. So, for example, you could go out to the aqueduct park and rent bikes. And I think your daughters would absolutely love that experience. And you can learn about history while you're out there and see Roman aqueducts that were built 2,000 years ago. But you're riding a bike while you're doing it. And that could be a really fun experience. And this is just a beautiful green park. And loping across the wide open fields are these series of arches that brought water into the great city of Rome. A million people got their water from these aqueducts 2,000 years ago. Incredible. And Susanna? Um, Well, I would, you know, sometimes Rome can be a little bit claustrophobic, so uh, why not going and have a little excursion? You can use the public transportation. You can take a little train to Lido, uh, which means the beaches, the closest beaches we have in Rome, and uh, you can see, actually, the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, you can have a walk. You can have a gelato. And uh, you can enjoy just the mm-hmm. day out. And it's only 35 minutes uh, from Rome to the beach. Francesca, about a 10-15 minute walk from Piazza Navona, where he will be, is the Tiber River. Across the Tiber River, you've got a beautiful um, palazzo. Far, far, what is the, the Palazzo Farnese, and then uh, and then across the uh, the river into Trastevere, which is, has a wonderful neighborhood feel. And I think even taking your kids there for a gelato or even for a pizza-making thing might be fun. If you ever were going to turn kids loose and say, see if you can write a little (laughs) poem about what you see, I think Trastevere would be a great place to do that. I would bring them to Piazza San Cosimato where they have that kids' playground and let them play around with the Italian kids and just make some friends. That's a great idea. Just hang out on the bench like you're a local. Piazza San Cosimato, yeah. Have fun, Matt. Yes, thank you so much. Take care. You're very welcome. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the wonders of Rome with Nina Bernardo, Susanna Perrucchini, and Francesca Caruso. Let's finish our little Roman uh, uh, discussion with just your favorite little intimate way as a Roman that you appreciate your city and that a traveler might enjoy also. Nina. 
So if I want a quiet moment, I go to the Protestant Cemetery, which is in my neighborhood, and I sit near the place where Keats was buried, and I look onto my absolute favorite monument in the city, and that is the pyramid, which I also see from my kitchen window. And this is the neighborhood called Testaccio? It's between Testaccio and Ostiense. It's just outside the Aurelian walls at Porta San Paolo. And you can get there quite easily on the... You can get there on the B-line, on the metro. Piramide is the metro stop. You come out, you see the pyramid. So the pyramid, that would be the Italian word for pyramid. You step out, there's a pyramid there, (laughs) and behind the pyramid is the Protestant cemetery. And it's located out there because probably if you weren't a Catholic... You, you were, it was you a non-Catholic cemetery, <laughs> yeah, and also called the non-Catholic cemetery. So non-Catholics Protestants and here. atheists are buried uh, there. All right. And Susanna? Well, for me, it's not such a cozy place because actually, especially during the weekend, there are many people. But I have an 11-year-old girl, and we do like on Sundays, if it's uh, the weather is good, and usually it is, to go to the Borghese uh, Park. And since uh, Sofia is not so good at biking, we would have a tandem. We would have a bike for the two of us. We would rent it. It's so much fun. You can go around, and then you can stop and have an ice cream, or there is a merry-go-round. And, you know, these are fun activities. I mean, Rome becomes more human when kids can do things that other kids do in the rest of the world. And young at heart kids can, kids of any age can enjoy any that age, in their Any age, any age. Francesca. There is a, a church behind the Pantheon, and I like to go there in the late afternoon where I can sit on the steps of an old church and look at the Pantheon and look at an Egyptian obelisk on a Baroque elephant and see the little kitties in the neighborhood playing soccer. And so it's a Pantheon and the children playing soccer. That's 2,000 years I in an instant. It. Francesca Caruso, Susanna Perrucchini, and Nina Bernardo, Mille grazie for a better understanding of Rome. Thanks for having us. A garden and plant expert with an adventurous sense of wanderlust tells us about his quest for botanic beauty in 50 of the most innovative garden parks around the world. Christopher Woods, the author of Garden Lust, joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. Christopher Woods first fell in love with public gardens growing up near London and working at the classic Kew Royal Botanical Gardens. Eventually, he'd serve as director and chief designer at a number of innovative botanical gardens in the United States and Canada. In his book, Garden Lust, a botanical tour of the world's best new gardens, he explores 50 of the most interesting gardens on six continents, from Dubai, Chile, Marrakesh in Australia, all the way to urban forest in Tokyo, and even a garden of glass in Seattle. Chris Woods, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm all into museums and castles and and paintings and statues. And reading through your book, it just really struck me. Travelers should be tuned in to gardens, whether they fancy themselves as a gardener or not. I think many travelers are tuned into gardens, botanical gardens, public gardens, uh, amass millions of visitors per year. And I think uh, they're essential parts of uh, world travel. Now, in your book, you say that gardeners are artists rather than painting on canvas or chiseling in marble. How is a gardener an artist? If you imagine that you were painting a picture and there was a frame and a canvas and you painted a very colorful painting, but once finished, the frame started to move and grow and the colors started to change and one of the key colors of the painting suddenly turned brown and disappeared That's essentially what gardening is. It is a movable feast of color and texture. 
So there's another dimension to it. It's sort of a you can be intentional about the changes that'll happen through the seasons and and have that all work out to your vision? I think that uh, most gardeners that I know, and I've said this about my own work, is that uh, when it's successful, I'll take credit for it. (laughs) And and when it's not successful, I'll blame the weather. (laughs) It is an interesting idea that it's a dynamic work of art, if if you want to. And you write how a gardener can pour his soul into one garden and shepherd it over many years. And you say, that's the price of paradise. How does that work for um, a gardener to love a particular piece of land and and what grows on it in an artistic way over the years? You know, the title of my book is Garden Lust, which is a play on wanderlust. But if you take lust itself, and I don't mean that in a prurient way, but this, this deep desire, this attraction, whether you have an attraction to garden or paint or play music or write or whatever your expression, your passionate expression actually is, it applies to a garden. Most of the gardeners that I know, they tend to be obsessive, compulsive. They are asked to look at the smallest things that you can look at in nature and then step back and look at grand design um, and so their minds are both kind of, kind of rammed into the earth itself, literally, and then pulled back at the same time. So what we talk about is our passion and our love of plants and nature and ecology and environment and so on and so on and so on. We're a voluble group of people, generally. The personality of some of these crazy gardeners comes out in the way you cover the gardens. One of your featured gardens is in Sweden, and the, the gardener Peter Korn you go back in his sort of history as a gardener, and you see, and you wrote that he had a teenage tryst with dahlias. And it was just infatuation, and then he moved on to more mature relationships. I never thought of gardening in that sense, but it really is a, a kind of a garden lust for a person like yourself who self-described a biophiliac. Uh, you know, I spent some time with Peter, and I was interviewing him, and it was a, it was May in Sweden, which is still practically winter. It was freezing cold. We walked around every square centimeter of the garden and looked at every plant, including the little brown ones. And he was talking in the way that he would talk about great love, great romantic love of a human being. Now, so this book is about 50 gardens around the world. I've written about so biodiversity, but it's also essential part of my life and an essential part of this book. This is about cultural diversity. I was not only visiting gardens, but I was visiting their creators and their relatives and the people involved. And I was also having dinner with them, and I was eating in foreign places and traveling to foreign places. So the book is much bigger than just writing about specifically 50 gardens. Oh, yeah, and that's clear when you when you page through it. I, I expected to be reading, you know, like guidebook coverage of 50 great gardens, and it's it's more than that. As you said, there's many dimensions to it, and, and these people who who are characters. They're almost like eccentric in their love of gardens. Do you think there's a relationship between how technology has pretty much taken us away from nature? Does a garden become potentially more beautiful and more important in a world that is so technological and and so far from, you know, basics of nature? It's a very interesting question, and it requires an analysis of what technology has done for us. And so the answer is yes and no to your question in that I think we value being away from technology and 
being able to touch and smell and look at versions of nature. And gardens are, are abridged versions of nature. It's not the wild. It's, it's sanitized nature and constructed nature. But they do give us a respite. Uh, they are an oasis away from the madness of electronica. On the other hand, when I was researching my book, three quarters of the research was done sitting in my office uh, online. You know, so if technology can facilitate our access to a more textural, a real world, then all for the better. You know, you, you're sort of philosophical in your approach to gardens, and uh, I thought it was interesting how you remind us that it's kind of a, easy for a lot of people that go to gardens or, or try to, you know, enjoy nature to think of it as us and it. But to embrace nature properly, you've got to realize you're part of it. I see no separation between me, my body, for example, and nature. You know, I was born and I have lived and I will die and I will complete a uh, cycle in the same way that, you know, leaves sprout in the spring and uh, drop off a tree in the fall and it's normal and my body is mostly made up of water and a few other chemicals, and, you know, it's my mind that gets in the way at times and creates a kind of false identity and a false separation. So this back-to-the-womb approach to gardening can enhance the experience, I would imagine. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Woods, and he just loves interesting plants and gardens so much he's been described as a biophiliac. Christopher's been the director of the Chanticleer Garden near Philadelphia, the Botanical Gardens in Santa Barbara and in Vancouver, B.C., and the Mendocino Coast Botanical Garden. He explores innovations in public and private gardens in his colorful book, Garden Lust, a botanical tour of the world's best new gardens. Uh, a key word there, Chris, is new gardens. You know, because I read the book thinking, oh, we'll go to, uh, you know, Bodenunt Gardens in Wales or Powers Court in Ireland or Villandry at the Chateau in France, but those are all classic old-world gardens, you made a point just to say gardens of the 21st century, didn't you? Indeed. The, the criteria for my choice of gardens is that they should either be constructed, created in the last 17, 18 years or had serious and impactful alterations in the last 17, 18 years, thus making them contemporary. You had some experience at the Kew Gardens, which to me is the classic old-school garden. <laughs> if, if you were the original director of the Kew Gardens outside of London and you walked into a modern botanical gardens, one of your favorites featured in your book, what would strike you as, as new and different in gardening? Actually, I think Kew is modernizing. It's, it's long history. It's almost 300-year history. Parts of it are a contemporary garden. But I think there are trends, and they're more than trends. They're strong movements, and one of the strongest is, let's say, environmental awareness or appropriate planting, and that includes using plants native to the region, plants that adapt to the climate of the region, even if they're not specifically native. I think there is a change in aesthetics very much away from the formal Victorian style of gardening that's lasted far too long, and the, and the changes towards a more naturalistic style of planting, although there are some very notable exceptions to that, and I'll point out one, 
in New Zealand, which is one of my favorite gardens in the book, which is called Parapuma, and it's on the in the South Island, and it is a formal garden with a central axis uh, and side axes, but it's comprised exclusively of New Zealand native plants. So it's a native plant garden in a very formal European style. And I found that um, staggering, that combination of essentially 17th, 18th, 19th century design with this 21st century discovery of a country's native plants. Because a, a Victorian or 19th century garden might actually think of itself more as an encyclopedia for people to go to and they've got a big greenhouse and here are the palms and there's the carnivores and there's the water lilies. That's my memory of Kew Gardens. But the gardens that you've featured are more indigenous or more right in the land and also in the land with modern culture. Describe this fascinating garden in an abandoned iron plant in Germany. That was an extraordinary experience for me in that this is an iron plant that uh, is in the Ruhr Valley that came up through the centuries, the industrial centuries, and then was very productive in terms of military expansion during the 20th century, both the First and the Second World Wars. It was eventually closed as a plant in 1968. Instead of pulling it down, the uh, city decided to keep it and to not restore it as a working iron and steel plant, but to leave it in as a memory, but also as a place where people could enjoy all kinds of things. And one of the big furnaces is a concert center where they have all kinds of events and fireworks. I watched an elderly couple walk along what was a canal, which is now, it's still a canal, but it's got you know, willows in it and kingfishers and, and it smells good. And I in a way, was transported back to what it was like in my imagination in 1944 when it was a sewer and there were slaves working for the Nazi uh, armament world. That transformation of what was into what is and taking something so horrible and making it so beautiful is just extraordinary. Christopher Woods set out on a global quest for the most interesting new gardens around the world. He presents 50 of his favorites from six continents in his illustrated book, Garden Lust. You'll find a link to his book with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Today's interview was recorded before the global pandemic. Christopher, when we think about these gardens, you wrote when in the context of the Crossrail Station Roof Garden in London that it was a joy to see a garden that's not dumbed down, one that expects intelligence from its visitor. What do you mean by that? Where this garden is, and it's on top of a subway system that is uh, going from east to west uh, through London, but originally it was in the Docklands. So these were the Docklands. It's now a huge corporate area of London. But it was the Docklands, and that's where plants were brought in for the first time. Bananas were first brought in all kinds of spices from China and so forth. It was the center of transportation in the 17th and 18th centuries. And the garden um, expresses that. It, it explains it to some degree. And it connects the people who visit the garden. And as I say, it's surrounded by large corporate centers. So there are lots of people having lunch and sitting down. But uh, it connects people with essentially the roots 
of agricultural and industrial history. But this encapsulates so much of British commercial history during the heyday, the great days of the British Empire. And it, it encapsulates it in such a good way and in such a pleasingly aesthetic way that I, I thought it was tremendous. You mentioned uh, the Chihuly Garden in Seattle where glass is mixed in with, with all of the beautiful flowers. It's fun to think that a lot of these gardens that were your favorites mix in innovative new parts of the environment or glass or industry or, you know, you're surrounded by skyscrapers and it's a cohesive kind of whole. Describe your experience at the Chihuly Garden in Seattle. Well, you know, Dale Chihuly is one of the foremost artists of this 20th and 21st century, and his work with glass is innovative and revolutionary for its time. But what I really liked about it was that the garden corresponds to the colors of the glass and the textures and the forms of the glass, the sculpture of the glass. And Richard Hartledge, who is uh, the landscape architect, who designed that garden was very responsive to Chihuly's work. So, for example, there's a great picture in my book of some very deep blue kind of spears of glass designed by Chihuly, and correspondingly, in terms of plants, there's a deep blue bulb called a camassia that grows amongst it, and the combination and the correlation, the dance between the two blues of the glass and the plant is extraordinarily clever. And uh, it impressed me immensely that this association between what is static, which is the sculpture, and what is moving, that is the plants, was so cleverly done, well done. Listening to you, Chris, talk about garden lust, appreciating gardens, it's a lot like art lust. When you go to a, a great art gallery the more you can bring to that experience, I mean, it'll be an, it can be enjoyable anyway, but the more you can bring, I think, the, the more you can appreciate that there's a lot of thought that goes into this artistic genius behind the work you're enjoying. It is art lust, and it's life lust. And in the preface to my book, I talk about my book as a love letter to the planet, and that is my form of love letter to the planet, is to write this book because as much as we have seen all kinds of horrible things, uh, certainly in my lifetime, there are so extraordinarily beautiful things out there, whether it's a painting in a museum in Venice or a garden in Seattle. These are life-affirming and beautiful things. And so I'm in love with this planet, despite its difficulties. I'm in love with life, despite my difficulties. And so my, my, my book is a heartfelt love letter. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, that's one note I took after reading your book. You wrote, it's a love letter to the planet and a celebration of the people who dared to create such beauty. I'd say it also a celebration of those of us who take the interest and uh, take the initiative to appreciate it and enjoy it. I hope so. Christopher Woods, thanks so much for being with us. Congratulations on a beautiful book, Garden Lust. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's by Someone warm them from below Till the rain comes tumbling down 
put an impression or two from your travels into the form of a haiku poem, and we might just read it on the air. Here are some travel haiku our listeners have written that we thought you might enjoy. Rebecca Saffron from San Diego, California, sends us this image of the capital of Latvia in her haiku. Riga collapses. Green nets hold it together. Keeps buildings intact. Nick Popolo from Staten Island, New York, writes this haiku about a trip to Greece. Greece was calling me where history was first taught. Civilization. Chris White lives in Marlboro on Hudson in New York State and is particularly proud of the Italian part of his family heritage. I'm half Italian. My blood is from Vicenza. You're in big trouble. The views are absolutely amazing in the mountains of Switzerland. We'll take a look next on Travel with Rick Steves. If you ever need a vacation from your vacation in Europe, I can recommend a little time to unwind in the mountains of Switzerland. The Swiss Alps come with their own distinct mountain culture, and being in the most expensive corner of Europe, prices can be as high as the peaks. Joining us for a practical guide to Swiss mountain travel are tour guides who know it well, Don Kimura and Macy Hitchcock. Don and Macy, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Hello, Thank Rick. you. Macy, what are the big commercial hits of the Swiss Alps? Places like uh, Chamonix. You've got kind of the bigger resorts in places like Gestad. What other ski resorts, Don? Can you Sa- think of Summer ski Ritz? resorts? Summer Ritz, yeah. Okay. Um, big resorts. So now Chamonix would be just over the border oh, yes, in, in France. France. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorry, not the, Switzerland. But it's, yeah. it's almost, you hardly know it because the Alps just cut right through there. Yeah. And we've got elegant jet setty ski resorts. We've got, of course, the Matterhorn. Yep. And when you go to the Matterhorn, uh, it's a dead-end train line, and then you're surrounded by incredible hikes. What's your favorite famous area in the Swiss Alps, Don? Well, of course, it's going to be the Bernie's Oberland for me because yeah. I lived there for 10 years. So you um, know that well. That's the area with the Jungfrau and the Schiltorn exactly. and the Eiger. Yep. Now, there's traditional areas. Uh, I, I know that in Switzerland they joke about the people in Appenzell because they're so backward. They only gave women the vote about a generation ago. Don, from your time living in Switzerland, uh, it's a modern country, but at the same time it's quite a traditional country. Yeah, and the traditions are different from canton to canton or state to state. Mm-hmm. Clothing is different. The food is different. Music is different. The, the terrain is so rugged that five miles away the crow flies could be on the other side of the world because you physically can't get there without going all the way around the mountain range. Exactly, and probably until uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, before trains and public transportation, these valleys were kind of isolated and they developed on their own. So what's an example of the, the amazing diversity you'd find in a small country like Switzerland? Even traditional dress. If you put on a traditional shirt from the Lauterbrunnen Valley, somebody from another part of Switzerland will know exactly where you're from just because of the color of your shirt. Just because of the color of your shirt. Yeah. Also in Austria, it's the same. Now, Macy, when you're in Switzerland, you'll find uh, it's a small country, but four different languages. Yes, there are four different languages. The main majority language is Schweizerdeutsch, which is like a Swiss German. Mm -hmm. It's German, but not as you know it. I'm a fluent German speaker. I sometimes have trouble understanding it. Is that Um, right? Yeah, and they speak High German to me, or Hochdeutsch, which is is the standard German. But that, for them, is a foreign language. And followed by that, you have French Uh, which is actually just like French with an accent. It's not so much dialect, and that's spoken pretty much in the West. And then you also have Italian, uh, which is spoken in the Ticino region in the South. Apparently that's just an accent, has an accent, but it's Uh not a dialect. And then you have Romance, which is the smallest, which comes from Latin, and it's a very, very minority language. And even in the area where it's spoken, which is Graubunden, which is in the East, 
um, the majority of people actually speak Swiss German. So it's it's dying out. Can you give us a, a little bit of the difference in just the sound of the Switzerdeutsch, the Swiss German with the high German? Um, do you want me to do one? Yeah, you do one, Don. Well, when it worked in Switzerland, of course, there was a, I managed a hotel for a number of years, and there was a bar. And people would come in and order a drink. And if you were to order that drink, let's say, can I have a beer, please? You would say in high German, can ich ein Bier haben, bitte? In the little town of Gimmelwald, they would say, jo, can ich ein Bier haben? <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of funny. Do another one. I love that. That's cool. What else would they say in the, um, in the Swiss uh, dialect? The weather seemed to be a big part of everybody's daily greeting. So you, you would say, Grüezi miteinander, schönes Wetter heute, Gal. They roll their R's a lot. It's, a very, it's a, lot. a very Alpine thing to roll your R's. They do it in Bavaria as well. Yep. And everything yeah. is sing-songy, it sounds yeah. like. Now, uh, when we learn in school, we say Guten Tag. And you were hiking up in the Swiss Alps. You're, you'll encounter different people greeting people in different ways. Yeah. Macy, what would you hear when you when you want to greet somebody in okay, the Alps? Okay, so you have lots and lots of different dialects within the Alps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been told off of saying this in the wrong way. But when you're walking in the Alps, you should greet people coming towards you, wherever they're from, with Grüezi. Grüezi. And you really pronounce the E in it. So when you read it, the temptation is because it's spelt G-R-U-E or umlaut, Z-L-I, is to go Grüezi. Mm-hmm. But they always really pronounce the E. And sometimes you might come across someone who comes from the Bern region mm-hmm. and they'll say Grüezech. And it will just depend where they're from as well. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Macy Hitchcock and Don Kimura about Mountain Switzerland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Mike's on the phone from Kennewick in Washington. Hey, Mike. Hi. My wife and I, we uh, toured the Berner Oberland area in 2006, and we're both retired now, and uh, we're planning a trip to Europe, and we're going to be spending a month in Switzerland, and we want to do it uh, entirely by train. So we're going to be going back to the Berner Oberland again. We want to do some hiking because the last time we didn't get much hiking because my wife injured her foot, so we want to do some hiking, but uh, our primary purpose is uh, to see the area again, but we also want to see everything and try to tour most of the country and we want to do it by train. So we're trying to figure out what's the best route to take uh, going from city to city and then ending up somewhere in the south of uh, Switzerland so we can make our way into Italy. Don, do you have any advice just general about using the scenic trains in Switzerland? Transportation in Switzerland is quite extensive. It's probably one of the most extensive of any country I've ever seen. There's various special package prices that you can get for for, the, for all the public pass, transportation. Swiss pass, family and that kind passes, of thing. weekend passes, you name it. So, Mike, be sure you know what your options are. And uh, as far as the hiking is concerned, I'll say all of the good hikes. You can actually do a lot of the part of those hikes by public transportation. You can do them all by hiking. But you can go up by public transportation to a certain point, continue walking, and take public transportation. I think that is so important. For instance, probably the best day of hiking I've ever enjoyed in my life was uh, above Interlaken in the Berner Oberland. I took the cogwheel train from uh, Wildersville up to, where, where was that? Kleine, no, Schenigaplatt. Schenigaplatt, right. Yeah. And then I walked on a ridge, and I just, I'll never get over this. I walked on a ridge for like six hours. And I got to first, right? Mm-hmm. I went past a sort of an elegant mountain hotel that people hike into, a Faulhorn. And then I yep. got to the top of the chairlift at first, and I took the chairlift back down to Gimmelwald. But the point is, I was in alpine glory all day long, but I rode the lift up, and I rode the chairlift down, and it was all sort of moving forward. I didn't come back to my starting point. And I was just in Chamonix. I did the same thing. You can do the same thing in Appenzell. Anywhere in Switzerland... I think Don's point of taking advantage of the public transportation. And in Switzerland, high in the Swiss Alps, Don, do a quick review of the different kinds of vehicles and trains and lifts that you can oh, encounter. 
Uh, you've got cog trains, regular trains, cog trains, funiculars, which is kind of like a train cable car, but it goes up on a track and a cable. One comes up when one goes mm-hmm. down. Cable cars. They also have buses. The postal bus system is something that's kind of unusual in Switzerland. It not only delivers the post, it delivers people. So in part of your combination of taking different public transportations, train and cable cars and whatnot, you should include a postal bus uh, that takes you part of your journey. Now even you can take a car onto a train that goes through the mountains. Uh, so there's just, you'll find that you can get around surprisingly conveniently in the Swiss Alps. And a lot of times you've just got to decide, am I going to take the extra time and nausea by switchbacking all the way up and over the mountain pass? Or do I just want to go right under the mountain? Macy, with tour groups, you probably save the time and you avoid the nausea and you go right under the mountain. Actually, you know what? We don't. We go over them because we get the best views. Uh That's the thing. I mean, there's the time factor. Of course, you have to take that into account. But in places like uh, the Gotthard Pass, of course, you can go through a tunnel. You can go through on the train. You're you're through a lot more quickly, but you miss this incredible scenery. Mm -hmm. And the climb up and the climb down, the descent, they can be quite hair-raising, but they're utterly beautiful. And I'd say there's places like the Grimsel Pass, which is one of the highest alpine passes in central Switzerland, 3,000 metres high. Uh, your ears are popping by the time you get to the top. There's serpentines, that's what they call them in German, I think switchbacks uh, in the US. It's worth doing because you just get these incredible vistas that you just wouldn't get anywhere else. Mike, I hope that gives you some ideas. All right, thank you. Happy travels. Happy travels to you too. Our guests, Maisie Hitchcock and Don Kimura, are guiding us to the best views in the mountains of Switzerland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Diana's calling from Westmont in Illinois. Diana, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, last June, my husband and I decided to take a trip to Europe for our 10-year anniversary, a week in Switzerland and a week in Paris, and doing kind of a rugged part of the trip for the first week sounded like a really good idea. And we had kind of a crazy hiking adventure. We did part of the Tour de Mont Blanc and probably went a little too early in the season. So I guess that's one of my comments or tips is be really careful about when you go for these hikes. We thought we were coming in right at the beginning. It might have been a little early. We ran into some pretty bad weather. The trails were covered in snow. Some of the Mm. trails were washed out at points. Got uh, slightly perilous at times. It was still a wonderful trip despite all of that. The scenery was amazing. We learned a lot of lessons from it in terms of preparation, things like making sure you call you know, the refuges to see if they were open, because it turns out a lot of them weren't yet. We really needed shelter. Diana, mm-hmm. the uh, Tour de Mont Blanc, is that, that's a big circular hike around the Mont Blanc range, is that right? Exactly. So you can do kind of pieces of it. So we used the combination. Um, we flew into France, trained to Geneva, another um, transport to Chamonix, then took a combination of local buses and trains to get to um, Champé-Lac just kind of at the top of the trail in Switzerland. Uh And the idea was to hike back into Chamonix. Um, We ended up cutting it short because we were basically waterlogged and freezing. (laughs) Sounds like you had bad luck with the weather. Hey, just in a nutshell, um, how many miles and how many days would most people take to go all around the entire Tour de Mont Blanc? It's my understanding if you took it relatively easy, it'd be about 12 days. Mm -hmm. I think there's people who do it in eight days if you're more in shape than probably I am can definitely do segments of it. Right. Um, and then you've got public transit ways to come and go. You can ride the lift down and hop in the bus and get back to your starting point if you, if you like. Don, a big challenge for a lot of people is getting all excited about a hike but being there in the spring when it's remarkably snowed in. I mean, you lived in the Berner Oberland answering questions of tourists and hikers for 10 years. Yeah. What are the seasonal considerations and the weather considerations when you're eager to hike but you might have underestimated that the trails are way up there and they could be snowed in? That's actually quite a difficult question nowadays because of the climate change. 
you know, even being in the Bernie's Overland in certain months where there was no snow, I find snow now, in certain months where there was snow, there isn't any. Hmm. And I remember being in Chamonix area in May and June, and late May, the lower hikes were closed because of snow. So the only recommendation I can say is to get on the internet or, you know, mm-hmm. the Chamonix sites and, uh, and keep up to date with the weather patterns. And a great thing about hiking in the Swiss Alps is wherever you are, um, Macy, I would imagine you've seen that they've got uh, monitors where you've got a live camera from the top of the mountain. And before you spend the steep price to get up to the top of the mountain, don't you find you can yes, take a look at the weather? Yeah. Most decent alpine hotels are going to have those in their lobbies and they will change. They'll show you all the different um, mountain tops in the areas as well to show if it's worth going up a mountain or not. You know, zero visibility, normally not worth it. What you also have in Swiss alpine or villages or resorts is you'll have big posters or boards which have all the hikes and all the lifts and all that kind of stuff. They'll help. They'll be lit up when they're closed or open. With a red or, or a green, red or green, if yeah. it's open or so not. It's, and, yeah. and I'll never forget just recently, in uh, I was in Chamonix, which is over the border in France, but it could just as well be in Switzerland. Down in the valley, it was socked in. I got out of the hotel. I, I just thought, oh, this is so depressing. My hotelier said, it's great. Get up there. And I got on the lift, and it broke through the clouds, and it was glorious on the top. You need to go with local advice. You need to look at the weather cameras, and you've got to remember a lot of times you've got to get up early before it clouds up later on. Be prepared for anything. I've gone out on hikes uh, where it's beautiful and sunny in the morning, and then in the afternoon or shortly after you start out on your hike, it starts to get foggy. It comes up from the bottom. You can't see. It gets cold. It starts to rain, and sometimes it even snows. So you've got to be prepared with umbrellas, rain gear, proper hiking boots, so uh, whether you're a, a nice, happy hiker or if you're a serious mountain climber, respect that weather. Yep. And remember, even if the weather goes bad and the visibility shuts down, you've got delightful walks down in the valley floor. And I've had some of my most beautiful days just down in the more mellow valley floor, even with a light rain. It can be very nice. I would just say one more thing. If you end up in that situation, as a piece of advice. Um, one, the, the lifts were closed, but we actually were able to follow the trail of the lifts into the town when we couldn't really see well. So we just kept following wow. the, the chairs above us and the lines until we found our way. Another thing is if you can't make it to the refuge, which is what happened to us, we couldn't make it to the refuge. We were scheduled to make it to the refuge, Albert, to make sure you call them. Um, we called them when we got to town, back to Chamonix, and they were very grateful because they said they were actually going to send people out looking for us because the weather had turned so bad. Oh, my goodness. They weren't sure we were okay. So make sure you do that, too. If you're staying at a local place and you can't make it, make sure to call them. I think it's important, too, that you understand the closing times of a lot of the public transportation. When you're up on a mountain and Uh, you think you're going to hike until 5 or 6 o'clock, your last train down might be at 5 o'clock. If that's the case, then I would recommend also taking a flashlight. That's a good idea, and it can be very disheartening to be having had such a beautiful time and uh, such a beautiful day, and you get back to the station half an hour after you realize the the last lift went, and then you're confronted with a pretty boring switchback, kill-your-knees descent into the valley when you could have done it. You even bought the round-trip ticket. You could have done it in 15 minutes on the Great Gondola. Yeah. Diana, thanks for your call, and have a Thank good trip. You. Okay, bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Julia's calling from Beverly Hills, Michigan. Julia, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Don and Maisie. Uh, I was lucky enough to live in Freeburg, Switzerland for a year with my two young sons and my professor husband while he was on sabbatical. Um, and we really fell in love with the Bernese Overland. So it's been fun to hear you chat about mm. that. Is that the French part of Switzerland, Freeburg? 
It is. It's just over the line from Bern. So it's yeah. only 20 minutes from Bern, but it's sort of a whole new world. <laughs> and that's sort of the flat urban area compared to the high mountains, but within an hour of all sorts of great alpine adventures. Oh, yeah. We just loved it. It's, it's actually fairly hilly. It's the pre-Alps, but yeah, it's it's accessible to all the gorgeous mountain trails that you're talking about. So you lived there. Uh, Did you find Switzerland pretty expensive to explore, or what are your budget thoughts on Switzerland for our traveling listeners? Well, I'm so glad you asked because actually it is expensive, but there are so many ways to make it less expensive than people think. Hmm. And one of those ways that I wanted to ask about was sleeping on people's farms. And it's something that we didn't actually ever get a chance to do Hmm. because of weather and time constraints and, and things like that. But there is a website, but it's it's actually not that easy to find. And so I wanted uh, your guide's take on how best somebody can find out about something like that. Macy, what is the story with sleeping, uh, I think they call it sleeping in the hay, right? Schlaf im Stroh. Hmm. Schlaf im Stroh. Literally, um, sleep sleeping in the hay. In the hay. Yeah, basically, uh, farms, or they'll earn some extra money, because farmers obviously aren't making huge amounts of money in Switzerland. They all get up to, I think, about 70% subsidies for all their, especially dairy farmers. Huh. Uh, so they like to make a little bit of extra money on the side. And what they do is they'll usually open up a room in their farmhouse. They'll fill the floor with hay. A you, room or it's, it's part of it's where the cows stay, basically. Uh, yeah, it? it can be. But I think generally nowadays it tends to be slightly separate just okay. for kind of hygiene reasons. Uh, but they fill it with hay. They fill it with hay. Keep it pretty clean, actually. And you go in there, you take your sleeping bag in there, huh. and you sleep there for a night. It's a bit like a, a very kind of basic B&B, bed and breakfast. And they'll give you breakfast normally in the morning. So you have some delicious fresh milk from the farm and have the cheese. Get to know the family usually who's running it, if it's a family-run business. It's a very good and cheap way to see Switzerland. But you need to be fit because normally you'll have to walk quite far distances to get to these places. They're not all on, you know, on public transport routes. So this is an organization with many of these farms yes. that rent out rooms to hikers, basically, yeah. and travelers. They're probably very clear, we're not a hotel. You're going no. to be sleeping in the hay. Yeah. It's going to be very cheap. Absolutely, But yeah. you're going to get a very intimate look at Swiss farm yeah. life. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't get much more hands-on, really, than that. I mean, Whoa. if you really want an insight into life on the Swiss farms, and this is a dying industry, I have to say, or even... You know, uh, it's basically dying out. Right. So it's, I'd say, go while you can. And there's one in particular that's actually in the region of Fribourg, not in the city, but the, the region, which is in this Röstigraben area, which you mentioned. Basically means the potato ditch region, where you have the language changing, the language barrier goes from German into French. Uh, and the French called it that. Um, but there the is one Roche called de Graben. They call it that because the, the Germans are always eating potatoes? Yes. <laughs> Kartoffelfresser, we'd say in German, <laughs> potato eaters. I've never heard that. The Roche de Graben. Uh, it's this linguistic barrier. And there's one called the Bederalp, which I would recommend. Uh, it's a very good one that's run by a small family. Theirs is very popular. They also have a dairy, they have a cheesery there. So it's a, it's a great experience. All right. Julia, thanks for the insight. Thank you. You know, we're going back this summer, so I will definitely look that one up. That that would be really fun. All right. Thank you. Enjoy your potatoes and sleep in the hay. <laughs> Thank you so <laughs> much. Now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been talking with Don Kamur and Maisie Hitchcock about enjoying mountain Switzerland. And let's sign off with just a little good Swiss-German uh, best wishes, happy hiking, and, and uh, happy travels. Macy, what would you say? I'd say adieu miteinander, which means bye-bye, everyone. And how, say that Gute with a, Reise. Now, in German, you'd say, in Hochdeutsch, you'd say Gute Reise. Gute Reise. And in Switzerland, you'd say? It'd be Gute, wouldn't it? Gute Reise. Don, how would you say goodbye and happy travels? I would say Auf Wiedersehen. And that's the Swiss word of saying Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. Looking until we look at each other again. Very nice. Danke. Bitte. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Kaz Hall and Donna Bardsley. 
We had help this week from the Berkeley Advanced Media Studios and from Sarah McCormick and Lisa Gray. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku. Instructions are at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe, too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.